Hello, and welcome to Season of the Bitch, where we believe in the Green New Deal and eco-socialism, and we want the internet itself to be a public utility. Today we have Walida, Helen, and Laura. Our guests today include Sean, who is a climate activist, a Chicago DSA member, and an elected representative on the National Political Committee of DSA, Uh, and Sveta, who is one of the leaders in the Democratize ComEd campaign, also by way of Chicago DSA. ComEd is a local um, utility here in Chicago. Uh, Sean and Sveta, welcome to Season of the Bitch. Yay! Thanks Thanks for for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. There's a lot of talk uh, during this presidential campaign season, especially about the cost of a candidate's uh, many different plans, particularly Bernie Sanders' climate plan, which I believe is by far the most comprehensive and most expensive plan that's out there right now. Um, It includes the intersecting areas of oppression, speaking directly about how to help the most marginalized communities, for example, that are impacted by climate change, the patterns of global migration that will result from it, and um, ultimately how to build what is essentially a green new economy by putting labor first and understanding how it's going to impact labor itself. Um, So we're hoping to dig a little deeper into that today, both on a national level and on a local level, and what what the Green New Deal might look like locally through democratizing our utilities. And our two uh, guests today have a lot of say and a lot of knowledge about these two issues. Um, Sean, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your climate activism? Yeah, awesome. Uh, Thanks so much for having us. So my name is Sean, and I use they, them pronouns. And I've been here in Chicago for a little over five years. And I've been uh, organizing around uh, the left for about eight and a half years or so. I got started while I was a junior in college uh, when the Occupy uh, Wall Street movement happened. Uh, And... Then I was involved in an eco-socialist environmental justice collective my senior year of school, which is really where I started to hear about what the climate crisis is and why it was very important for us to be organizing around it. Um, And after I moved to Chicago, I took a job at a climate nonprofit, Power Shift Network, a student organizing uh, formation. Uh, And I was on staff there for about four and a half years, uh, and we went through a lot of big changes, uh, helping to support fossil fuel divestment, uh, trying to shut down fossil fuel pipelines, uh, and also then supporting some of the work around the Green New Deal as it was getting underway. Uh, Now I'm doing work in uh, DSA. I was doing a lot of work locally, helping get the ComEd campaign and other stuff uh, off the ground. And now I'm serving on the National Political Committee for DSA, bringing an eco-socialist perspective to the organizing work there. Are we going to get into what the ComEd campaign is? Because I actually don't know what that is. Okay, cool, cool, cool. (laughs) We will. We will. Don't worry. Great. Awesome. Um, Yes. Uh, Awesome. Yeah. Um, 
Sveta, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your climate activism? Sure. And um, this will probably be a good opportunity to also talk about what the comment campaign is. Um, so, <laughs> so my name is Sveta. I she, her pronouns. I'm also based here in Chicago. Uh, I've been organizing with Chicago DSA uh, for just over a year now. And I actually come through like to climate work through um, socialist organizing as opposed to kind of the other way around um, and sort of really excited by the opportunity to get involved with eco-socialist work locally um, as an opportunity to one, the stakes um, are really high, so we're never going to be able to build a better world if we don't deal with the climate crisis and do that in a way that's um, sort of just uh, for everyone, uh, as well as this is a real opportunity. People are starting to kind of see the impact of uh, capitalism on not only our wealth inequality and people's lives, but also on the planet and how unsustainable that is. And this contradiction is a real opening for us to kind of... Um, make some decisive actions and do some real change. So one of the things that I do here in, in Chicago is I work um, on political education and part of the leadership team for um, our Democratize ComEd campaign, which is one of our chapter priority campaigns here. And it is uh, tailored around municipalizing our local electric utility. So ComEd, as Alita mentioned earlier, is uh, Chicago's private investor-owned electric utility they have a monopoly in terms of providing service to folks in uh, Chicago and Northern Illinois. Um, and they've had that monopoly for the past hundred years or so. Mm. Um, they make over $200 million in profits uh, from what? Yeah. Every- <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we can talk a little bit more about that later. About well, Yeah, it is $200 million in profits. They pay their CEO makes 200 million, uh, $2 million a year, okay. uh, which is, probably dozens of times more than, than their actual like rank and file workers. And we can talk a little bit more about that, what that looks like in terms of Green New Deal in a little bit. But uh, the goal of this campaign is to say, you know, utility, electricity is a essential good. Uh, it does not make sense for it to be provided on the market in a commodified form. We need to take over this function. And so Democratize ComEd is a push for the city uh, to form a, an electric utility. Um, and buy out ComEd and start providing the service directly to residents. Um, it's been a while since something a utility was municipalized, but there's actually a pretty broad movement all over the country to, to do just that in New York and California and yeah. Colorado. Um, and a lot of uh, cities, including Los Angeles, are already served by electric utilities that are municipal, um, just like we have municipal water and municipal transit here in, in Chicago. So um, our goal is to take that profit motive away um, from the provision of an essential source like electricity, uh, and then really be able to use the new levers that that gives us uh, to hold the account, the utility accountable um, as we make the decisions we need to, to make to face uh, climate change. And um, the solutions that we're proposing, ho- hopefully um, in different hands, will then serve um, Chicagoans more equitably than um, kind of the right now the math is what is profitable and that's not always like what's going to help uh the most people live a safer life yeah i i just want to give a little shout out to a friend of the pod as new york state senator julia salazar who has been um uh speaking out about how utilities should be a public good in new york as well so uh, i just want to echo it 
Yeah, <laughs> love you, Julia. I just want to echo what's better what you're saying about how um, while we're talking to two people who are doing a lot of work in Chicago specifically, this is part of a broader national movement um, to democratize our access to resources, including electricity. Yeah, definitely. Public power is one of the sort of priority campaigns of DSA's eco-socialism work across the country, and it's a really exciting opportunity. Mm. Yeah, and uh, with New York specifically, it's really amazing to see. I think we can talk about it more a little later when we talk about like what the campaigning has looked like, but specifically with Julia and DSA pushing it, it's also then started to really turn into a bottom-up campaign that is influencing the way that AOC is talking about the Green New Deal on a national level uh, because, like, you know, she held a re-election uh, town hall and people were asking about, like, all right, what's federal policy for democratizing the grid going to look like? So it's oh, that's great. awesome. Yep. Great. So, yeah, I think this is a good segue to one of the things I wanted to start out by asking. Just um, I'm sure that our listeners have at least a general familiarity with the Green New Deal. Um, but I wanted to ask you guys, like when we're when we're talking about it, when we say the words Green New Deal, what do we mean? And um, I know this may seem obvious, but uh, to throw you guys a softball, why do we need it? Yeah, totally. So I'll start. Um, by talking a little bit about the climate crisis and where the Green New Deal concept has come from. And then, Sveta, if you want to jump in and talk a little bit about the DSA Green New Deal principles and Chicago's campaign and how it fits in there, I think that would be a good way to split it. So, yeah, the climate crisis is really bad. Uh, what? Around, uh, for Shocked. a minute, uh, you know, uh, human activity because of burning fossil fuels is leading to the collapse of civilization. Australia is on fire, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et and there have been a lot of proposals put forward uh, for how we're going to go about solving this, mostly market-based mechanisms mm-hmm. that are sort of tweaking around the edges, um, and. Uh, when the financial crisis happened in 2007, 2008, uh, you started to see people talking about the need for stimulus, economic stimulus and investment programs. And Thomas Friedman, actually, everybody's favorite neoliberal show, um, is one of the first people to use the concept of a Green New Deal. And he meant it in the very, like, stereotypical, like, uh, bad way that we think about it now, which is like taking all the worst parts of FDR's New Deal, the like white working class coalition and like having a bunch of sweaty men that were going to be putting up windmills and <laughs> use that to like reestablish American dominance. Um, and uh, the United Nations Environment Program also talked about a Green New Deal So there's a lot of actually bad history of where the Green New Deal concept comes from. Then uh, in 2018, uh, the Green Party had also been trying to put it forward, and it was kind of floating out there, but it was just this wonky policy idea that actually was not serious policies. It was a frame that nobody liked. But AOC (laughs) and her team were doing some polling, and it turned out that people actually did like this frame. Like, ordinary, uh, everyday people liked this frame. And so they married that with 
a set of actions that the Sunrise Movement was doing in um, Nancy Pelosi's office right after the 2018 elections, where they were going to be talking about a federal jobs guarantee and the need for a federal jobs guarantee as a really core demand for how to create an economic stimulus that was going to benefit like working people rather than capital and uh, talked about how we should use the framing of a Green New Deal. And then it exploded. And then AOC uh, in the House of Representatives and Ed Markey set forward a resolution that was a set of goals. It was essentially an empty political framework that said, we need to have uh, uh, carbon reductions by 2050. We need to have full employment and universal health care and marrying these like big picture um, social goals, uh, social justice, uh, air quotes, goals uh, to the project <laughs> of addressing the climate crisis. But we don't have policies yet for how that's going to happen. So it was essentially putting forward a political framework, getting people to sign on, and then figuring out the details. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's maybe a good spot to talk a little bit about um, where DSA's eco-socialism work fits in. Um, because part of that kind of empty frame that Sean was talking about, um, it's really important you know, you can have massive public investment, um, and we've had in this country many times massive public investment that um, still turns around to, to benefit private profit mm -hmm. um, and not benefit um, us equally. So uh, DSA actually um, adopted a set of principles for a radical Green New Deal um, that not only commits to sort of decarbonize the economy by 2030, so on pace to kind of... Um, stop the worst of uh, sort of global warming. So that 1.5 degree centigrade limit that the uh, inter intergovernment intergovernmental panel on climate change warns us um, will um, have kind of the worst impacts um, of, of climate change. Um, but also to do that more rapidly here um, in the West so that we're kind of paying off some of these climate debts that we owe the rest of the world. Or we've got a history of extracting resources, um, rising emissions. Um, and at the center of, of those things, of the eco-socialist Green New Deal, is the idea of um, a just transition for the working class. So thinking about um, good jobs with union wages um, and union representation, public control over major energy systems and resources, which is where democratized ComEd fits in. I can talk a little bit more about that in a, a moment. Um, and kind of centering this idea that we're going to decommodify survival. So again, taking things like energy, transit, healthcare, housing um, out of the marketplace and um, organizing our economy so that we're serving like those needs, those use values, uh, respecting the limits of the planet as opposed to uh, unchecked growth uh, for yeah. profit. So Medicare for all, just as much as democratized ComEd is a, mm. a radical Green New Deal policy. Hell yeah. Yeah, so um, the Green New Deal is interesting in that it, it, is a, it is a sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Like it's a very robust sort of thing where it addresses all of these different things that are, that are contributors to climate change. And it also talks about like, you know, people who talk about the Green New Deal, Bernie, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, you know, all the at least government representatives or pro proponents of it and discuss it, talk about 
all of the ways it's going to impact human life if we, you know, if we don't do something now, all of the different things that are going to happen. And it's not really just like, you know, cars and airplanes are causing massive carbon to be emitted into our atmosphere. Um, like Sveta was saying, our utilities are also very pollutive, uh, specifically our energy grid. Um, it's not just Chicago, it's nationwide. Um, our national transportation system is terrible, of course, not just our national one, but even our local transportation systems, like virtually requires car travel or plane travel to get across the country. Um, and I hate both of those things. I'm scared of planes and I hate driving. <laughs> um, but also they're just, you know, an ext extremely pollutive and inefficient ways to travel, especially in mm -hmm. cities. Like the mm -hmm. idea of driving in a city for me is ridiculous. There yeah. should be no cars in cities whatsoever. Um, so I wanted to get a little bit about like how the Green New Deal addresses these issues specifically at city levels and regional levels. Um, Sean, mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about what that looks like in terms of transportation and travel and what people can expect a Green New Deal future to look like? Yeah, totally. So um, I think that um, one of the most exciting things about the Green New Deal and uh, the um, like coalition of organizations and, uh, you know, books and discourse and everything else <laughs> that's being put forward is really the fact that I think people are trying to grapple with what needs to happen, uh, in the next like 10 to 20 years. You know, I think everybody is more or less on the same page with like, we have a place to get to by 2035 or by 2050 or whatever, but they're having trouble with the vision of what the next 10 years look like. And I think transit, um, and some of these pieces around ownership of electric infrastructure and internet infrastructure, like I'll talked about the, at the beginning, some of these inputs are things that do really need to be changed in the short term. And thus far, a lot of the climate movements uh, solutions that they've put on the table have really been centering individual choices and personal mm -hmm. responsibility tactics you know buy an electric car take shorter showers uh and if <laughs> yeah. enough individuals uh recycle and and if enough individuals are able to do this then uh we'll be able to somehow like uh hit the uh, magical market signal that is going to then make the oil industry say like, okay, I guess we lost time to pack up and leave. <laughs> um, but no, like, you know, we laugh because I think we have a material analysis mm -hmm. of what we're going to need to do. And for me, that is what's really exciting about the Green New Deal. Even if some of these policies are not necessarily written yet, although frankly, a lot of them are. You see some municipalities experimenting with free transit, especially more in Europe. Um, but there are some American municipalities that are starting to do it. Um, you see investment in uh, public transit. You see failed investment uh, schemes being put forward for high-speed rail. I love mm -hmm. to talk about the fact that Scott Walker campaigned for being governor of Wisconsin on bringing <laughs> back federal subsidies for high-speed rail, uh, which is so ridiculous. We could have a fucking high-speed train from uh, cartoon to Minneapolis. It's yeah. terrible. <laughs> but I think the Green New Deal is about putting those things on the table 
and saying that we do need to shift the consumption patterns of those of us in the global north, uh, and specifically in the United States, who have gigantic carbon footprints. But the way to do that is not by shaming and finger pointing and putting guilt on working class people. The way to do that is by seizing the wealth of the rich uh, and mm -hmm. using that to pay for universal health care and free public transit and all of these things that are going to increase the standard of living for people who need it. Um, mm -hmm. And then we'll be able to make shared sacrifices where necessary once uh, people are like on board with that project and have mm -hmm. a sense of what the climate crisis is going to require. And oh. if I could jump in here and yeah. kind of... Um, give a little bit of a concrete example of, of how we can think about something like the grid in this way of um, we could either be making individual choices to reduce our energy consumption. And a lot of the solutions that get proposed um, are around, okay, how do we incentivize um, less electricity use, which is all, you know, important um, to in our individual footprints. But when we think about what it means to actually do something like take the profit motive out of um, our electric grid, we actually then redefine the terrain on which we're making these decisions. Uh, so just as a really concrete example, uh, right now, ComEd, like a lot of, of, of utilities, they make money uh, not based on how uh, much electricity they sell. They actually make money based on where they're making infrastructure investments, uh, which on the surface sounds good. But uh, we need to think about sort of who's making those decisions on uh, how infrastructure is being invested in. So these days we kind of have a world where um, they have a, a motive to build as much infrastructure as possible, but only to the extent that it directly falls under the umbrella of the things they can profit on. So you'll see, and you'll probably see um, a lot more frequently, um, sort of talk about building more electric car charging infrastructure. Um, maybe more microgrids that serve specific communities. And not that those technologies in and of themselves are bad or not going to be part of the broader climate solution, but they're not the same as a massive investment in public transit, which as opposed to serving the, the sort of relative minority of people who can afford an electric car or who's still going to um, you know, own a personal vehicle, um, it's actually gonna expand sort of service of, of already a low carbon a way to get around to folks all over the city. Um, or we could be talking about things like weatherizing people's homes, directly investing in, in solar generation, um, weatherizing our schools. Every, every year in the summer and in the winter, we hear about schools that don't have adequate heating, adequate cooling. Um, and those are the kinds of investments that we could be making as a city. Um, with the $200 million that we currently um, just send directly to ComEd shareholders. Uh, but those are not the solutions that you'll see ComEd propose because they don't fall under the umbrella of things that they can then make their guaranteed profit margin on. Um, yeah. And we can repeat that in any number of, of contexts. Um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> so kind of switching gears slightly um obviously climate change is a global issue uh we have earthquakes in puerto rico fires in australia ice caps melting on and on and on um and i guess i'm curious as to what y'all think the united states 
what the responsibility, what the role is of the United States in the global climate in the global fight against climate change. Like, how can we take responsibility without centering ourselves as the global center of the universe, so to speak? That's such a good question. Yeah, (laughs) do you want to go first? Uh, Yeah, so when we talk about, okay, what is the Green New Deal? What do we mean by this framework? Uh, I think there's a world of difference between uh, sort of a Green New Deal framework like the plan Bernie Sanders has on the table, um, which has billions of dollars in investment um, for the global South, kind of a Marshall plan for the earth idea, mm-hmm. um, where we will pay back our climate debts by investing directly uh, in letting other folks like, develop their economies in a clean way, as opposed to building a lot of solar panels here and then selling them cheaply abroad as a kind of form of green imperialism. Mm. Another piece that's in the Bernie Sanders Green New Deal that is not elsewhere uh, is thinking about, okay, actually demilitarizing uh, and cutting the budget of the U.S. military, which is the largest polluter. And we know that um, sort of climate and and imperialism are sort of deeply linked. And unless we solve kind of that problem, we actually are not going to get very far uh, in terms of solving the climate crisis. Yep. The, what I would add to that is that, uh, as Sveta kind of talked about already, like we as the U.S. should really be thinking about how do we get out of the way? Um, how do we uh, make sure that we're not fucking up the ways to build on international climate policy that is very weak at the moment, but we should be thinking about how to build a firmer foundation. Like when the Trump administration pulls us out of the Paris Agreement, uh, that signals to other countries that they don't need to take climate change very seriously. And so in some ways it's less about like what's in those agreements because most of it is like horse shit. Um, But it also is a foundation that can be ratcheted up and made stronger over time. Also, we can think about um, trade and like all of the bullshit that uh, is being passed right now through uh, the Senate and the House, um, which lots of people's favorite presidential candidates are voting on, uh, Mm -hmm. the USMCA. uh, It actually creates subsidies for tar sands, which people call (laughs) over on the climate. And like it's uh, it's so infuriating. I didn't know that that was happening. And when I saw that that happened, uh, it's like totally erasing everything uh, mm-hmm. in terms of international rules that people are trying to build through one legal framework for addressing climate um, change. It's all being undermined by the like global trade rules um, that are regional and global trade rules that are being passed. One of the other things that I'll highlight in Bernie's plan specifically that is like good, but definitely could go further, is um, stuff around technology transfers and investments in the Green Climate Fund, too. I don't know exactly what the language is in his plan, his Green New Deal plan on uh, uh, providing free technology transfers to developing countries, um, but that is a way to actually show like state-to-state international solidarity that's very different than like what Sveto was saying, where we're like selling that technology to people. Um, and I think the idea is that if we can provide that technology free, then that will allow states that are developing 
to sort of leapfrog over fossil fuel development and into renewable energy development. And the way that we pair that with uh, essentially like global investment, we just put money into a global bank, the Green Climate Fund, that can be used um, to support the global south as they're dealing with um, everything that's uh, happening um, because of the climate crisis. Mm. Sean, I always think about how in Naomi Klein's book on, on climate, she points out um, the Kyoto Protocol mm-hmm. and the, was signed in the same year as the World Trade Organization was formed. And mm. um, one of them has teeth and the other one didn't. And we can't afford to make that mistake again, right? Mm. Yeah. Are you talking about yep. this changes everything? Mm-hmm. This Great is book. the book that I recommend to everyone when they're starting their like uh, connection between capitalism and climate change uh, process. But yeah, amazing. One yeah. one other book recommendation that I have really quick too um, is there's a, a Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal by Kate Aronoff, Alyssa Battistoni, Daniel Aldona Cohen, and Thea Rio Francos. It just came out. Mm. And one of the four chapters is on recharging internationalism. And it's really, really good for both some of this big picture stuff that we were talking about and also some of the really specific ways that like um, extraction of lithium uh, Mm -hmm. in Latin America, uh, the way that that's playing out very clearly shows that just because we have the technology to make electric cars does not mean that we can just swap out all of our elect- all of our gas burning cars for electric cars because we're still going to be fucking over indigenous communities in the global south if right. that continues to happen yeah i also yeah. love that we just like all of our guests recommend each other's shit it's amazing <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah we had um we had uh, kate and thea on um, a few months ago for our, our first eco socialism episode um, so People who are listening at home, definitely go listen to that, but also buy their book um, because they're incredible. Um, And this is actually, this is a good segue into something I wanted to ask about. Um, The fact that y'all were using words like um, uh, imperial, sort of like a climate imperialism, um, uh, talking about like the global north versus the global south. Um, I wanted to kind of direct some of this line of thinking back to home um, and to think about what is essentially environmental racism within the United States. Um, And just ask you guys as sort of a broad question, how do plans like the Green New Deal and like the various um, utility democratization campaigns work to undercut environmental racism here at home? Yeah, totally. I can start and then um, Sveta, if you want to add stuff, uh, especially around like local context. So I think one of the big things is, you know, environmental racism is a concept that was created by uh, groups of mostly people of color um, that were coming out of the civil rights movement, created principles of environmental justice and this idea of environmental racism um, that uh, specific racialized groups of people were suffering the effects of uh, fossil fuel infrastructure and utility <laughs> infrastructure first and worst. And so you then see organizations that have been working on things like this for many, many years 
uh, long before DSA was a twinkle in anyone's <laughs> eye. Um, and also long before the environmental movement, like when the mainstream environmental movement was still leaning into like kind of shitty immigration messaging and strategy, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> they were working on uh, stuff to try and build a just transition for workers and democratize utilities and fight uh, environmental racism. And so now, as we see this latest iteration of climate organizing work, uh, and we see DSA chapters leading uh, a lot of that work at the local level, we see coalition building happening with some of those organizations that have been building bases of working class people of color for decades around environmental justice work. And so it, in many ways, I think, is helping to build local and up to national coalitions that are able to push back against some of the um, more... Uh, reactionary tendencies in the mainstream environmental movement um, and present an alternative vision as well that is addressing uh, racial capitalism and like really getting at the heart of the problem. Yeah, and I think we're, we're talking about a little bit utilities specifically, we um, also have to remember that um, you know, we need electricity, right? Like that is an essential, your house has to be warm enough for you to to be able to send your kids to school, to like plug in your refrigerator, to like function, right? It's, it's a, a crucial thing. And um, currently in, in Chicago, like ComEd last year, I think cut off 280,000 um, accounts, mm. like shut off the electricity for a failure to pay. Um, it is, we live in a city where it is still possible to be evicted for um, not being up to date on your utility payments. Um, after rent, the cost of utilities is like the second highest cost. Um, and yeah. I think one in five households in the United States is utility burdened, which means that they're making choices between whether or not they're going to pay their utility bill or buy medicine or food or, or something like that. So it, it's a really, um, it's a daily life issue. And because of the way that um, sort of capitalism maps on to um, marginalized and racialized communities, like oftentimes those are the ones that are, are most impacted by these um, kind of injustices, injustices and burdens. And so an example from New York, actually, a couple of months ago, where um, Con Ed with an N um, actually shut off power to poor black and brown communities so that they could avoid shutting off power to a wealthier communities in Brooklyn when there was kind of bad storm putting a, a load on the grid. Um, and that is a sort of decision that happens in, in micro scale uh, many places. So when we think about our utilities and we think about who are they accountable to, right now they're accountable to shareholders and those shareholders are, um, you know, frankly, the same sort of pri private equity funds that also um, kind of buy up our healthcare debt and our medical debt and all that stuff, um, our college loan debt. Um, and they're not accountable to the folks actually living in these communities. We don't have a say uh, in how our, what infrastructure investments are made, um, when rates go up, why they go up, all of those things. Um, hmm. And the concept of democratizing it just, it means putting it into public ownership, which is a really important kind of lever that gives us a lot of um, opportunity to 
push further and have a, an electric grid that's accountable to us. But also, if we're truly going to democratize, uh, public ownership isn't enough. We also have to create uh, infrastructure where folks can like actually give input on their on these decisions in their community. And that means massive popular education on how the grid works, um, what these decisions mean, actual avenues to give input um, in, in their communities, um, things like an elected board where we can hold folks accountable, but also public meetings uh, and taking this, taking the grid or taking infrastructure in general out of this space of uh, just technical expertise and, and making it something, it impacts our daily lives. So we have to have the tools to make decisions about those things, even if we're not energy policy experts, if that makes sense. Totally. One other quick, quick example I'll put in about environmental racism there is when some of the stuff was released around the Green New Deal um, work in late 2018, early 2019, uh, we saw a formation, uh, the Climate Justice Alliance, which is a, a membership-based coalition of a lot of these environmental justice organizations that have been around for a long time, uh, raising some of these concerns and the need for having uh, democratic structures at the local level to figure out what these policies could look like. So um, this is something that I think is really important is being able to uh, like lift up those concerns as we move forward too, because it's not just about pushing back against like the lack of democracy that the capitalist state uh, <laughs> has, but it's also about the lack of democracy that like liberal technocrats uh, mm -hmm. impose on everybody too. Totally. Um, I just wanted to follow up really quickly um, on something that you had said, Sean, uh, because you had mentioned a just transition. And um, as a heads up to both of you, I'm an environmental educator in my day job. So I often work with a just transition framework uh, when I'm working with the teens that I have in my program. Um, and I actually heard Bernie mention a just transition in one of the debates recently, but no one's really kind of going into what that means. And I just didn't know if you wanted to briefly explain what a just transition means. Yeah, totally. Um, so the concept of just transition was first created by Tony Mazaki, um, who was a union organizer with the oil, chemical, and atomic workers in the 1980s. Uh, he was working with uh, union folks and then also uh, frontline and fence line communities, so communities that were right on the fence of that fossil fuel infrastructure. And saying that, you know, uh, if we just go and shut down all this fossil fuel infrastructure immediately, uh, all of these workers are going to be out of jobs. And, you know, they might be able to breathe, but they're going to starve uh, or they won't be able to pay their bills. And so what we need to do is have a uh, equitable uh, or a just transition for these workers where we're actually paying them to get retrained into uh, new industries that are able to uh, utilize some of their existing skills or uh, they're able to train them in entirely new skills or buy them out for an early retirement or that sort of thing. So that was the uh, origin of the concept. Uh, it was very labor-oriented. Now it has a slightly more expanded uh, view in large part because of the work of groups like 
uh, Climate Justice Alliance and Movement Generation and the Indigenous Environmental Network. Um, but the core of it is still the same. It's about ensuring that those who are most directly impacted um, are able to have uh, a way to uh, get trained or have the sustenance necessary as the larger structures um, transition. So we also see people starting to use it for things like uh, healthcare industry workers as we implement Medicare for all as well. So it's less of an environmental term there, but it's still a labor-oriented term. Mm. Thank you. I was actually telling somebody, um, a friend that I hadn't seen in a while, we went out this morning for breakfast and he's extremely not political at all. He doesn't even know who's running for president. But I was explaining a little bit to him about Bernie Sanders' plans because I'm always doing that to everyone <laughs> I'm talking to um, to get him to vote. And... Um, the first question he asked was, what's going to happen to all the people that work in the health insurance industry? And I was like, oh, good question. So there's this thing called just transition. And then I went through it with him. And yeah, I think he's going to vote for Bernie Sanders. So Yay. here we go. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> um, so we, you know, talking about just transition and how this is going to require a global movement and all this stuff. We're already seeing massive migration happening. Mm-hmm. Um massive underfunding of poor and rural areas uh, when massive climate events hit them. Uh, We see what happened in New Orleans, in um, Puerto Rico. We see what's happening in the global South. We see what's happening in South Asia, um, African parts of Africa. It's really, really terrible. Um, Last year, Naomi Klein, uh, she spoke at the uh, socialism conference here in Chicago, and I saw her speak, and she said that she's been to conservative conferences. Like, she's been to conferences that are very right-wing, and they talk about climate change, and they don't really deny that it's happening. They know that it's happening. They just believe that their money will protect them from the worst of it. Um, And you see that happening already. You know, rich people live in the healthiest parts of the world, uh, that's very much by design. Um, and I'm wondering as, as climate activists, what do you all think it will take to win an eco-socialist future and stave off an eco-fascist one? I think it really comes down to not putting environmental or climate issues in a sort of separate bubble, um, and really under understanding how, um, labor issues, you know, having democracy in your workplace, um, workers' rights, not only in the U.S., but abroad, um, immigration, opportunity for people to travel um, and seek shelter from, um, you know, one of the, the main causes of, of migration to the U.S.-Mexico border is the fact, like, climate-induced drought in Central America, right? Mm-hmm. Um, climate change-induced drought in Central America. Um, so really understanding how these issues are interconnected and uh, proposing solutions that actually solve for both of these variables at the same time, because we know that they have kind of one shared cause, which is um, capitalism is an economic, an economic system that prioritizes profit over, again, people and, and planet. Um, because if we try and solve for either of those things in uh, kind of in silos, we'll, we'll fail. Um, and it's a pretty grim uh, future that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the biggest thing for me is that um, it's like 
we need to understand uh going back to like what kate and thea say all the time uh in in their book planet to win all all politics are climate politics now mm -hmm. and we have to really lean into that we also really have to lean into uh giving each other hope and finding hope because things are gonna get worse before they get better and we cannot project a false sense of hope, but we can project uh, the uh, horizon of fight, fighting for a better world. You know, somewhere where I draw a lot of inspiration from is ACT UP and thinking about how, like, in the 90s, 80s and 90s when the AIDS crisis was happening, everybody's horizon was fucking collapsing. It was the end of the yeah. world. I had no idea what to do. But then they formed an organization that turned that fear into anger and that anger into rage that was targeting the fucking pharmaceutical industry and the politicians that were sending them off to die. And yeah. we need to do the same thing. We need mm -hmm. to project that anger against the people that are fucking us over, um, name them, uh, they all have names and addresses, and we should really <laughs> uh, true. channel that rage and like uh, keep fighting because every degree of warming that we're able to stop from happening means a better world than if we were to like give up and become complacent. Yeah, and sort of kudos to Sean and the other folks who worked on um, sort of the early stages of democratized comment as propose this as a priority campaign in Chicago DSA because I, I got involved seeing uh, a presentation um, that did just that. Um, both didn't shy away from the sort of enormity of the crisis, but then was able to present like here is a concrete solution that we have actually quite a bit of control over um, within our local context. But if we win this fight, it rearranges the, the dominoes, so to speak. Um, it changes the, the stakes. And so um, kudos, Sean, for all that work that that you did and uh, all of y'all did because I think it is it is possible to, to both name the enormity of the crisis and then give people things to work on that will build towards a, a solution. Mm. Totally. Oh, I love the idea that like every political issue, every issue is an environmental issue because it's so true. And also like as I'm like slamming my head into a wall watching these democratic debates, <laughs> it, it like becomes even more clear that like every single question really does kind of circle back to that. And, you know, I'm a person that like has very little faith in the electoral system because of the lack of democracy within our system. But at the same time, listening to those debates and like hearing the the like greening of the military by Elizabeth Warren and all this other bullshit, it's like there there are clear there's a clear voice, obviously, on that stage that is, um, you know, having these things at the center of their mind. And I think we're all in agreement about that. But um, I think it's a good opportunity when we think about like kind of the flaws within our legislative system, the ways that the that, um, you know, between Citizens United and other ways that uh, corporate money has weaseled its way into our democratic system, as well as just like um, the lineage of power, uh, you know, from from the inception of this uh, nation as it currently exists. Um I just was curious, like, kind, we've kind of been talking about the Green New Deal. We've been talking about all these things. Are there specific pieces that y'all see where the Green New Deal falls short? 
Um, well, I think that, <laughs> yes, uh, totally. Um, I think that one of the big unresolved tensions is that uh, in order to get big, comprehensive policy passed, we are going to need to uh, get uh, labor, um, probably the building trades. But the building trades are not going to let the AFL-CIO move. Like, um, and this is all very in the weeds. Um, but it's all to say that like, we can see the box of the Green New Deal starting to become smaller already. And there's not even federal policy uh, yet. So I think that that's one of the big things. Uh, and that is then going to lead to an inability to uh, really tie it with fights uh, around fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, you know, if another standing rock happens, um, which is very possible, uh, there are multiple pipeline infrastructure fights already happening right now. But if another big blow up on the level of standing rock happens, we're not going to be we're going to see divisions in the sort of fragile Green New Deal uh, coalition. So I think that's one of the big things. And I also think that the public ownership stuff is frankly not a guarantee by any means uh, of making it into the core of what the Green New Deal is. It's very contested terrain right now. That's mm -hmm. why DSA built a set of principles and why we're trying to fight for these policies on the local and regional level so that we can essentially provide proof of concept at the federal mm -hmm. level and say, public ownership, underlying ownership structures, and actually talking about eco-socialism is something that's really necessary. So I think that all of those are really big. There's also lots of stuff around fossil fuel subsidies and financial flows. Uh, that's mm -hmm. a project I'm working on right now. I could go way in depth on that. <laughs> I'm not going to. Uh, Sveta, are, is there other stuff that you think is missing? Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing to sort of remember with, with the Green New Deal is the legacy of, of the New Deal. Um, and especially when we think about um, how a lot of um, the kind of gains in, in the New Deal happened um, without respect for indigenous peoples um, and oftentimes um, in ways that actually like undermined indigenous peoples' rights in the United States. And so when we talk about the Green New Deal, I think it's also important to, to start talking about um, things like the Red Deal, um, which um, the which is kind of a, a supplement in taking um, further um, of the idea of the Green New Deal that actually starts to think seriously about questions of um, decolonization and what it looks like to steward the climate um, with respect um, respect to those ideas and taking them seriously, which is uh, frankly not, not part of the broader conversation about um, the Green New Deal. And it probably should be if we're really going to right some of those historical wrongs um, and it actually shift um, our climate policy and climate and economic systems. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you two are just delightful to talk to. Thank you yes. so much. For, I mean, not only are you delightful to talk to, but you're so full of really interesting and good information and you, and you, it's delightful to listen to you talk about all the stuff. So thank you so much for all of this amazing information. Um, Is there anything else that y'all need to say before we say goodbye 
Um, I would say if you're not in Chicago uh, and not yet involved in a local eco-socialism working group of DSA or another environmental justice or climate organization, there's, you know, over 200 DSA chapters. There's over 200 Sunrise Hubs. Um, like find a place to plug in and get involved. The only way that we're going to be able to like take on the climate crisis is together in organization. So we got to do that. Um, I'll make sure that y'all get some links for those Green New Deal principles, as well as a study from the NAACP on uh, energy burden uh, mm -hmm. and how it affects uh, racialized communities first and worst usually. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, those are the resources that I can think of. Cool. Yeah, and if there's a public power campaign happening around you, um, please like join us to make that part of central um, the central aspect of the Green New Deal, but also just having these conversations about um, climate and economy um, in as many places we can, as many contexts um, as we can, I think is, is a great start. So thank you so much for having us on. Um, it was so fun to talk to you all today. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for coming thank on. Our pleasure. Well, that was amazing and informative. Amazing, amazing. Thanks to Sean and Sveta. That was, it's always like, I feel like even if we do similar topics on like, you know, we, you know, we've, we've had conversations about these sorts of things before, but everyone has different kinds of expertise. And I feel like this interview was definitely unique comparatively to some of those other ones. So I feel super grateful and kind of amped up about it all. Um, as always, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Season of the Bee. Um, you can check us out on our website, seasonofthebee.com. If you have comments, questions, concerns, or ideas uh, or suggestions for upcoming episodes, or if you think you would be a good guest for an upcoming episode, um, you can email us at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Um, please send us your money on Patreon. That's very uh, helpful to us in our continued journey into uh, socialist feminism and uh, rate review subscribe on iTunes yeah all Am right amazing Melita go get some love sleep it. don't let oh your puppy God. keep you up all night <laughs> I love her though I just want to stare at her but also I want to sleep I don't know what to do <laughs> yeah I mean that's Just a struggle. Go to sleep and dream about her. Yes, That's true. exactly. Do problem solved. <laughs> Great advice. Oh, love you both so much. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Season of the bitch.